to bless now our time together in your word this morning. We ask you, Lord, to use it in us to prepare us to come to our Savior's table. Lord, we might uh, rejoice there in our faith and our trust in the redeeming work of our Redeemer. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son to die for us. Thank you, Lord, for uh, bringing us to the table frequently that we might remember him and his death for us. Bless us now this morning, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I suppose that uh, by now you've all heard the bad news. It's all over the internet um, and TV this morning, and as usual, it's difficult to digest. Before anyone gets too agitated and starts uh, searching on their phones to find out what that bad news is, let me just quickly add that I'm not referring to any particular piece of bad news, but all of it in general, and there's always plenty of it around. So much of it that I suspect that, I, that when I said that this morning, a fair portion of you kind of groaned inside. And some of you might have even said to yourselves, oh no, what's wrong now? What happened now? So just think for a moment as you reflect on that, how much different it would have been if I had stood up here this morning and said to you, I suppose you've all heard the good news by now. I'm sure you're all aware of what the good news is. Your ears would have perked up. There wouldn't have been any groaning. And many of you might have said to yourselves, oh, finally, some good news. I'm so glad to hear that there's good news out there. And with that in mind, imagine what it would be like if the next time some family member or friend or acquaintance with a worried look approached you and asked, uh, have you heard the latest bad news? And you replied by saying something like this, yes, there's plenty of it, but I have some good news too. Because God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How do you think that would change the conversation from that point forward? Someone came up to you and said, oh, have you heard the latest? And you said, no, but I have heard the good news. The good news of God sending his son into the world to redeem lost sinners. And we're often looking for ways to approach people with the gospel. Beloved, there's a way to approach people with the gospel. There's a way to begin talking about those things. By just going right from that bad news to the good news of Christ Jesus. 500 years ago, a simple German monk named Martin Luther stood on trial for his life before the all-powerful ecclesiastical and civil authorities of his day. His crime was violating a series of mandates against preaching the good news, the good news of salvation for sinners by the grace of God alone, through the sacrifice of Christ at the cross alone, by faith alone. 
in a world that was struggling with plagues and threatened by political upheaval and suffering under economic repression and inundated by depressing and deceptive superstitions, Martin Luther dared to stand up and say, there's good news and I cannot deny it. They wanted him to deny it, but he said, I cannot deny it. And we celebrate that stand today on Reformation Day. Now, last week we began talking about the, uh, the adding of the last of the spiritual gifts that we read about in 2 Peter chapter 1. So if you haven't turned there yet, I'd encourage you to do so. If you've got the notes, it's typed out there for you. If you have your Bibles, you can certainly, and I would encourage you to look there. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, Peter writes that his divine power, that is God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, that is, through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from becoming ineffective or unfruitful, excuse me, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter teaches you, by God the Holy Spirit, that this list that we've just gone over can help to confirm for you your calling and your election in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, help you to assure yourself of your place in him by the evidence of his spirit living and working in you. And the evidence of his living and working in you is the development of these gifts as they come. Your faith and then the things that are added to faith. We've been talking, therefore, about making every effort to add to our justifying faith virtue. And to our virtue, knowledge. And to our knowledge, self-control. And to that steadfastness. And then to our steadfastness, godliness. And to our godliness, brotherly affection, and finally, to all, adding love. And hopefully you're examining all this to better prepare yourself for going out into the world and bearing the light of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Bearing it in this dark and dying world by loving others in the name of Christ, not in word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now we pointed out last time that the Christian's call to love others is not natural to the old man, or the old nature, I should say. It's not just a nice thing to do, but it is a necessary thing to do. Because it isn't natural to the, uh, the Adamic nature. It is natural, however, to the Christ-like nature borne by the Holy Spirit in the believer. 
It's also necessitated by the command of our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who directs us not only to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, but even to love those who hate us, those who persecute us, and those who despitefully use us. And thirdly, it's necessary because it's required if we are going to try and reach the lost, living in sin and living in darkness. We have to have the spirit of love. The spirit of love has three qualities that we mentioned, specific uh, qualities. First, it is decided. There is election involved. Um, involved. I elect to love these lost people in this case. The second aspect is this. It is expressive. That is, it demonstrates itself, which brings you right back to our overarching theme here from John. In 1 John 3.18, little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And thirdly, it's diffusive. It works everywhere and anywhere it can. This is the sort of activity that becomes those who are, according to Ephesians 2.10, Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which, were, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that's just a quick review from last week. Now this sort of love that the Christian is called to supplement his or her faith with is the same sort of love that's demonstrated to you and me by the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's your example on all things, you can determine just what this sort of love ought to look like by considering that love for you that he has and which really is memorialized in the elements on this table before us here this morning. The message here is that while you and I were yet sinners, Christ in love died for you and for me. It testifies that here in his love, as the word declares, the, the good news preached by the gospel and by this table and its elements the news is not that you first loved God, but that he first loved you and offered his son to be the propitiation or the payment for your sins. If you look at Romans chapter 5, and you can turn there if you'd like to, or it's probably on the screen behind me or in the notes you have on hand, you'll see that Paul says there in Romans chapter 5 and verses 6 through 8, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, would dare even to die. But God shows his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So now, when you begin to think and talk about how the Christians should manifest Christ's love towards others, you need to carefully consider how it was manifested towards you. Right? If you're going to communicate how Christ loves sinners, then the best example you have is how he loved you. And ultimately, of course, that was by exposing you to and convincing you of the good news. That is the gospel. How it applied to you. And for each one of you, that's a slightly different story. 
or in some cases, a widely different story from others, because there are all kinds of stories. For many of us, it would be very much the same, especially those of us who are covenant children, who have grown up in Christian homes and been a part of the church since we were infants. Um, that's been our story. And we have embraced that faith and embraced that, that, that confidence in Christ as our Savior. And that's a common story among us. And it might be slightly different as to how that truth was applied to our hearts and, and how we came to grasp it as our own. But that's our general story. But for others, the story is widely different. And it has to do with being confronted by the word in different ways at different times. But there are some things about it that we all share in common. And at the heart of that is this. Every one of us was the inexplicable object of God's love. The inexplicable object of God's love. When we sit back and we look at how God has redeemed us and saved us, we all look at it and say, why me? How did this come to me? How did I, out of all the people in the world, come to know the deep, deep love of Jesus Christ? How was that forged into my life? Why was I chosen to know that? And all of us share the wonder of that reality. And this love that has been so wonderfully shown to us has some certain basic qualities in regards to how it was revealed to us. And the first of these is represented in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ's love. The prophet Isaiah describes our Messiah as the one who doesn't cry out in the streets, as the one who doesn't break the bruised reed or stalk. And if you've ever seen a, a cane, a piece of cane or stalk, and it gets broken a little bit and it gets bruised, there's a weakness in that spot and the, and the cane can drop over at that spot and even be ripped apart where it might not be able to be ripped apart in other places. But he doesn't break the bruised reed or stalk. And he doesn't extinguish the smoking flaxen wick. That wick that is in the lamp that is just barely uh, uh, ignited, just smoking. It's not his way to come and to put that out. But it's rather his way to come and to blow that into full flame. John says in John chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And it's important then that those who wish to reflect the love of Christ to the world must have a spirit of meekness and possess that loving gentleness which his spirit gives to those who love Christ. It's a part of how we approach the lost. 
with that spirit of meekness and gentleness as we go forward, bearing the message of the gospel, bearing the story of Christ's love. It's also important to realize that that meekness didn't prevent, prevent excuse me, the Savior of love from showing boldness when it was required. And that's the mystery of this thing. Being able to, to exercise that gentleness and meekness, but at the same time, having boldness. When the love that he had required it, Christ showed boldness. In the Gospels, we see him dealing with his disciples with that loving boldness, as well as those who said they wanted to be his disciples. We even see him dealing with his enemies boldly, but often lovingly and, and meekly. And that's nowhere more dramatically demonstrated than when he's standing before Pilate. We've never seen one so meek and gentle as Christ standing in the presence of Pilate. And yet he's bold and tells Pilate he can have no power at all except that we're given him from above. And when he asks him if he's a king, he says, you said I am a king and I am a king. And he's bold in what he says, but meek and gentle at the same time. Secondly, that love to you was well-aimed. Well-aimed. It took into account, and it continues to take into account, even today, who you are, where you are, what you need, and when you need it. That's the character of that love. It's always responding that way to you. What do you need? Uh, who are you? Uh, because we're all different. That's why our stories are all slightly different. Because we're all different. And yet we have the same story about Christ's love for us and that love being manifested to us. I believe that one of the most comforting passages in Scripture is Psalm 103, verses 13 through 14. And it says this, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. So often, the child of God is reduced to sitting before him as little more than a pile of dust. I mean, that's what we're reduced to. Uh, all our dreams, all our strength, all our expectations, all our hopes have been reduced down to where everything is resting and, 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 and riding on him and we're just sitting before him like a pile of dust. And I'm so thankful that as a loving Heavenly Father, he never forgets that and has and is having compassion on me accordingly. And aren't you? thankful for that too that he never forgets that you're dust and that he deals with you accordingly as a loving father that spirit beloved should transfer over in your hearts to those poor souls outside of Christ who just like you and me are just dust and we should look on them with true compassion and I don't mean by that condescending pity that reeks with arrogance. I mean Christ-like pity. 
Sometimes, Christ's disciples can be heard exercising the spirit of James and John rather than the spirit of Christ. James and John, you remember, when hearing of the Samaritans' attitude toward Jesus and his disciples, asked Jesus if he wanted them to call down heaven, a fire from heaven to consume them. Look at these bad people. They won't even be nice to you. Would you like us to call down some fire and, and have them extinguished, have them burned up? That was their attitude. It's in Luke chapter 9, verses 51 through 55. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, that is Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus rebukes them for that attitude. He rebukes them for saying such a thing. Peter, much later in his second epistle, tells you the spirit of Christ in regards to the lost. He's discussing the inevitable coming of Christ's judgment on the earth when fire does come down from heaven and burns up everything. And he's discussing it with those who dare to mock its reality. And they're mocking the reality of this judgment by supposing that the delay is the result of some lack of resolve in God's part or an indication that the whole threat is just a hoax. And he writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that is, Peter does. He says in 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And like I say, I've seen sometimes the people of God having more towards the lost, the spirit of James and John, than the spirit of Christ. These people to whom we wish to demonstrate the love of Christ are just what we are, dust. Dust living in sin and rebellion, yes. Dust despising the word of God and indulging wickedness, yes. And we need to approach them with the love of Christ, keeping in mind that they are what they are, keeping in mind what they need and when they need it and how desperately they need it. And lastly, Christ's love is patient and persevering. Every believer, I think, knows that's true. The events memorialized by this table before you this morning are a constant testimony to that very thing. As he prepared to institute this supper and then go to be betrayed and put to death, John writes this in John 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and we know what that means, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them, he persevered for them, to the end, to the bitter end. Christ's special love toward his own is unchangeable and incessant. 
till they be perfected and enjoy the full effects thereof. For having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He continued his love from the beginning till now. He is to die for them and depart from them and continue it even then and will do so till they be brought to the end of their journey, says Hutchison. But this patient, persevering love, beloved, is always pushing forward. And you who believe have some idea of how he wooed and he drew you uh, with, with what scripture calls the, the cords or the cart ropes of love. And he brought you to the point where you came to embrace by, by just, uh, justifying faith, his love for you. In Hosea 11.4 it says, I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and I fed them. That's the way we're to be carrying the gospel, with that same kind of spirit, persevering, patient spirit, bending down, offering it, trying to relieve the burden of their hearts by the message of the gospel. And oh, how this patient perseverance is revealed in the continuing work of sanctification. You know, that process by which we're conformed more and more into his image. You get older and older, and you think, well, we're getting close to eternity. <clears throat> Fewer days between now and then. How much more do I have to learn? And then you realize a whole lot. There's still more work of sanctification that needs to go on, and it needs to keep going on. We're conformed more and more into his image. We sense throughout our lives the hand of the potter on the clay. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, we read it in Sunday school this morning, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now think of how often he directed your steps or took a path that you dreaded and patiently and lovingly and deliberately reformed and refined you. That same spirit of loving perseverance is what we need to exercise toward one another. But particularly, beloved, toward those who are outside of Christ. Those souls who are drowning in sin and suffering confusion and disillusionment in this world. Beware of skipping ahead too quickly. I say that in light of Jesus' instructions to his own disciples... You might recall that he told them to shake the dust or scrape the mud off their sandals if they and the gospel were rejected in some town or village. And I think believers are often tempted to start scraping and start shaking the dust off long before it's appropriate. You have to look back at the context of those words of Christ and realize that this was set before his disciples, beloved, as a bitter last resort, only to be done after persevering and patiently sharing the good news. 
it wasn't the first thing to do. It wasn't like you go into a village in a town, you say, hi, I'm here, and I'd like to tell you about Jesus Christ. And then they say, we don't want to hear that. And you say, oh, okay, well, then you shake your, your sandals or you scrape the mud off and say, so be it for you. That's not what was going on here. They were supposed to go into homes and to live there and to be a living testimony and a witness. And it was only after that witness was rejected and set aside, after long efforts of persevering, that they were to respond that way. And look at how it's even said. Jesus says in Luke ten eleven, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Do you see the last word is still an appeal? It's one last appeal. Look, I, I, this is the last time I'm coming. We're, we're wiping off the dust of this town. But know that the, the kingdom of God has come near to you. you. This is your opportunity to hear and see the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I'll close this morning by just calling your attention to the words of Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 12, the latter part of verse 12 and verse 13. Because Paul kind of tells us here what this kind of meek, gentle, uh, well-aimed, persevering love looks like practically. He says, when we were reviled, we blessed. When we were persecuted, we endured. When we were slandered, we entreated. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. But we endure, we entreat, we bless. And the picture there is that this is the reaction of the world to the message that's being brought. And Paul says, we respond to that with a gentle, patient testimony, the well-aimed testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then to Peter says it this way in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, in your hearts, this is verse 15, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So you have to take the key words out of there. Always be ready to make a defense. When do you have to put up a defense? When somebody's attacking you, right? That's when you need to put up a defense, when someone's after you. And so that's what he's talking about. In those circumstances where you're under attack, be ready to put up a defense and to be able to declare something about the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Here again, Peter propounds, says Luther, 
and sets before us for a pattern to imitate our Lord Jesus, our, our Lord Christ, and his bitter passion. After the rule whereof, we ought to frame ourselves and not presume to prescribe unto ourselves any new singularity. For as Christ is a pattern to all Christian believers, and to them all is set down for an example, so all men in generality to intimate, uh, imitate his steps. And in all their actions, professions, and functions of life, whatsoever be tied, to have respect unto him, and after his dealings, to conform themselves, or to conform themselves to Christ. So may it be with you and me, as it was with Paul, as it was with Peter, and it was with Luther, in proclaiming the good news. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that be the way we carry the love of Christ into the world. Not trying to impress men with our learning, but trying to bear witness to the love of Christ by our gentleness and our meekness and our careful aim of the message. May God give us the grace to bear testimony in that spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this table that's set before us, which reminds us of how much, how deeply, how carefully you loved us. And we pray, Lord, that when we declare that we're going to go out into the world and show that love to others, Lord, we would pray ardently that we might reflect that love in every way. Father, help us. We are but dust. We are weak. We do sometimes get angry. We do sometimes get frustrated. And Lord, we do sometimes become short and impatient. But Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would give us that love which reflects the love of Christ so that we can be truly light bearers in this dark and dying world. If there's anyone here or online who doesn't know the love of Christ. We pray, Lord, that uh, where they may have seen at one time or another Christians failing, they would realize that we are just dust, and we do fail. But the message we bring is not the message of our love, but of the gentle and meek, well-aimed and efficient love of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us that our sins might be forgiven and that we might have the great joy of eternal life. This is the good news, even among all the bad news of any day, any era. And we thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus our Savior's name. Amen. Let's turn together now. Um,